Hello and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. My name is Sam Kelly and what you're currently hearing is a soundtrack produced by the artist and author Kristen Galliner. In a moment you'll be listening to me interviewing Donna J. Drucker, author of Contraception, A Concise History. Hi Donna, thanks for speaking to me today. Hi, thanks for having me on. So you're the senior advisor in English as the language of instruction at TU Darmstadt. In That's Germany. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're the author of A Classification of Sex, Alfred Kinsey and the Organization of Knowledge, and The Machines of Sex Research, Technology and the Politics of Identity, 1945 to 1985. And of course, you're the author of Contraception, A Concise History, which will be published as part of the Essential Knowledge series in April here at MIT Press. So I read your book the other weekend on a train to Manchester and uh, quite fittingly they have these screens on the train that cycle through BBC headlines and one of them read contraception shortages causing utter chaos. Mm. Uh, And I think what would be really helpful, which is something you do really well in the book, is talk about how contraception, contraceptive technology historically has shaped society and continues to do so now. And Great question. Um, and it'd take a lifetime to answer it, answer it fully, but I can, I can give it a shot. I think access to contraception uh, really kind of goes to some fundamental questions about how we as a society decide who gets to reproduce and who doesn't, um, and who gets to bring forth children and who doesn't. So For example, um, the restrictions around technology are kind of one side of the story, allowing access and innovation are are another part of the story. And there's also kind of a legal angle and a medical angle and and a social history angle, all of it. And of course, everything is different according to what country you're in and what the shape of the government is. We can look at, for example, contraception in the United States since perhaps a lot of listeners will be uh, familiar with the American history, um, in that contraception was declared illegal um, to distribute through the mail or to sell or to buy in 1873 in the United States under the Comstock Act. Although you could still get it, you would have to um, sell it or buy it under different kinds of guises, different sorts of use, different sorts of language to, to get access to it, which brought forth, of course, a tremendous underground market for, for devices. Um, and when, when we say devices at the time, we're thinking condoms, later on diaphragms, cervical caps, um, some spermicides, things like that. And it's really not until the 1930s, uh, specifically 1936, when contraception in the U.S. is legally prescribable by physicians. And that's due to a long legal fight put forward initially um, by a physician in Margaret Sanger's uh, Birth Control Research Bureau. And that didn't necessarily have a massive change on society since there was still plenty of access to, to contraception. But that illustrates, um, in the, perhaps in the, by the 1930s, the massive gap between actual use by individuals and um, kind of the social rules governing a particular technology. Moving on uh, through, the, through the 20th century, the next major um, kind of technological advance in contraception is, of course, the hormonal pill, which is uh, first 
legalized in the U.S. in 1957 for menstrual disorders. And then by 1960, it's allowable to be prescribed only to married women by uh, physicians. Then, of course, it takes off around the world under lots of different names, manufactured by lots of different companies. I don't want to say immediately, but very close to right away in 1961. And so just in the period between, say, the Comstock Act and the development of the pill, of course, there's enormous social changes in that, in that period of 90 years. But what contraception does is the shift to hormonal contraception um, and kind of the availability along the way of things like diaphragms and cervical caps slowly kind of tip the balance of power over who decides who gets to use contraception. What ends up happening after the pill becomes widely available worldwide within, within a period of about two years is it tips the balance away from men who traditionally had the, well, the physical method, i.e. withdrawal, or the technical method of condoms to control when a pregnancy could potentially occur. Can you just clarify when this shift is taking place? It's very slowly happening when diaphragms and cervical caps are available to women, which actually begins in the 1880s. Diaphragms and cervical caps are the methods that most birth control centers in the U.S., in the U.K., uh, South Africa, Germany, Austria are focused on getting to women clients, but they never take off in popularity for a a variety of reasons. They don't stay together. You have to replace them. They break and so on. But the pill is really the technology that tips that balance toward women having control over uh, whether a pregnancy occurs particularly because it's in a way invisible because no man can tell when a woman is on the pill or not. I was just going to say that that leads really nicely into my next question, actually. All these questions about freedom, access and choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the position you take up in the book is one of reproductive justice. And you talk about how important that is. And I was wondering if you could define that a little bit and also talk a little bit about what's that difference in certain technologies where they can go from furthering reproductive justice or actually acting as kind of methods of control. So I think there are three concepts that are important in thinking not only about contraception, but about the broad range of uh, reproductive-related technologies generally. And those three are reproductive health, which is a service delivery to individual women, reproductive rights, which are the legal rights to reproductive health care, including abortion. And then there comes along reproductive justice, which was developed in the mid-1990s by African-American women. And it's really a, a framework that identifies how Reproductive oppression is the result of the intersection of multiple oppressions and is connected to the broader struggle for social justice and human rights. And it finds its ultimate roots in the uh, Declaration for Human Rights um, promulgated in December 1948. Reproductive justice focuses specifically on three 
simple sounding but rather complex rights, which are first the right to have a child, second the right not to have a child, and third the right to parent. And what reproductive rights advocates measure laws and policies on is along these three angles. And what's helpful is it kind of takes reproductive rights, doesn't just take reproductive rights as a form of analysis, but a a broader sense of human justice and bodily autonomy. And the interesting thing, like as you said, is that this form of analysis can help us examine whether a technology is really harmful for people or is it genuinely helpful for people because, of course, national governments all around the world have specific interests in how large their population is, how healthy their population is. And governments sometimes want to promote the number of children that exist in a country, and sometimes they want to limit that number. So one example of a way to use reproductive justice to think through a problem is the emergency in India during 1975 through 1977. And part of the emergency was a a new sets of laws and rules that demanded people um, be sterilized in order to receive particular government services or to be eligible for certain government services. So for example, if a man had six children and he wanted to get a bank loan, he would have to prove to the bank that he was sterilized in order to get the loan. And of course, that's a significant form of reproductive coercion to link your fertility to something like like a bank loan. And so reproductive justice can help us analyze these different ways that a single technology like sterilization can be used both to curtail human rights can also be used to promote human rights in that sometimes people really want sterilization or they want a particular kind of service and they're denied it for other reasons. On the other side, in the United States in the 1970s, there were battles on the other side of sterilization in that a lot of white women wanted to be sterilized after having perhaps two or three children and they were stymied from doing that due to hospital regulations that were often called 120 rules, which was the number of children you had times your age had to be over 120 before you were eligible for sterilization. Do you know why that number was arrived at? Uh, I don't know that one one specifically. Um, I think it was 100 in some places, perhaps 150 in in others. It was really just a a mechanism to ensure that basically white women had done their breeding duty to society and and had a sufficient number of children before they were allowed to have an operation that they they wanted. So it's easy to see how you can use reproductive justice to investigate a single technology and evaluate both its um, uh, coercive elements and its freeing elements at the same time. I think that's what's so interesting about your book is the way that contraception as as a kind of field of study is so intertangled with power dynamics of gender, sexuality and colonialism and class and all these other things. But it's also something that might not be immediately apparent as such a political 
subject. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. W would you be able to tell me a little bit about uh, your thoughts on the future of contraception and, you know, how with collective development of understanding of things like gender and sexuality and different types of bodies and how to make sure that contraceptive technology is designed and implemented in a way that furthers reproductive justice rather than inhibits it? Yeah, that's a great question. At the moment, there are a variety of different kinds of technologies and um, medical experiments happening. For the last 150 years, contraceptive testing has taken place um, more or less along the same two axes, either medical technologies or kind of physical barrier barrier technologies like, like a condom or a, a diaphragm. And so people continue to tinker with with uh, the physical, the physical ones, uh, for example, the diaphragm and the cervical cap um, have kind of come back. Female condom, which has now been renamed the internal condom, um, has made a return, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And so there continues to be development along the lines of what kind of um, materials work best for barrier methods, what inspires people to, to use them, to buy them, to take them on, and so on. On the other side, there continue to be medical, particularly hormonal technologies under development, particularly vaccines. And some of them have only been tested on mice. A lot of them are being tested on men, because there are a number of men who do want to take an active responsibility uh, for contraception outside of um, making sure they use a barrier method. Uh, the one that is best known was on trial between 2008 and 2012, but it was canceled due to men's um, strong reactions to hormonal contraception, like the typical things that women experience like headaches and bloating and weight gain and irritability and things like that. So that study didn't proceed any further, but there will still continue to be people working with hormones and hormone, different horm hormone formulations to uh, see which ones can be used with the least side effects. And on the future, what I think is striking is that the contraceptive industry and um, public health um, advocates and researchers around the world are really engaged in developing contraceptives that are workable for everybody. And those include you know, people who are obese or, or severely obese who may have difficulties absorbing the hormones in a pill. And it also is um, of particular concern for people who are transgender. So for example, um, someone who's transitioning from kind of a female-oriented body to a male-oriented body may want to use contraception, but they can't use an IUD because um, their vagina won't um, hold the IUD fast within it. So there's more and more attention to providing healthcare for people um, with a wider range of bodies, wider range of uh, physical concerns, so that um, everyone who wants to prevent a pregnancy um, is able to um, healthfully and safely. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. Great. Okay. Thanks, Thanks again. You.